Why, hello there. My name is Jesse Dollamore, and I don't even listen to I Doubt It with Dollamore. <laughs> the following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. All right, let's do this. Bonus episode for Patreon supporters only. Dollamocracy 2016, facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. All right. Holy shit. <laughs> it is our very first Patreon-only bonus debate analysis episode. Analysis. Welcome to this very informal, it's just you and us, guys. <laughs> Everybody. All those other asshole listeners, yeah, they're not hearing this. What an elite club. We can have a real good time. <laughs> <laughs> not too good, though. Not too good. So. Three hours. Yeah, we just finished our, well, three hours for you. I watched the first fucking B-team debate, too. Not good. Okay. I mean, great, great debates. Uh, first of all, before we get any further, I do, listen, I want to thank... You listeners, you Patreon supporters, really from the bottom of our hearts. I, I'll include you, Brittany. I know Thank you're you. really hateful, but yeah. <laughs> we we really do appreciate every single penny that you have e expended and, and donated and shelled out of your hard-earned money toward supporting the show and partnering with us to move the conversation forward. Um, I say it on the show all the time, and goddamn, it... It is a beautiful thing, and really, it touches us, and we are, we we feel touched, and in some really good, really good <laughs> places. So, so thank you very, very much. It means uh, it means a lot to us. It does, and we've been thinking of ways to, you know, give back. And there was such a great response to our last debate episode, so we thought, well, why not just make that kind of bonus content? For the people that are giving, you know, stickers maybe aren't enough. What else can we do? And we've tried to think about other things, possibly, uh, you know, coffee mugs, T-shirts. Yeah, T-shirts are, they've been suggested. I just can't imagine someone wanting to wear a T-shirt with my stupid cartoony face on it. You mean people don't have I Doubt It with Dollamore Pride? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right. So we have thought, I have been seriously considering um, coffee mugs for those of you non-Mormon listeners, Patreon supporters. Uh -huh. And I've also thought about maybe beer koozies or, or uh, mouse, ma pads. mouse pad. Yeah. But if you have some suggestions, email us. I doubt it at dollamore.com uh, or call the number, whatever. 657-464-7609. Let us know, because I do want to do something extra, something special, other than just more of me talking. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really appreciate it, and I, and, I, and I want to show that. So let's move on with the debate. And before I start, I want to say this. Donald Trump's going down. 
That's I wanna, your prediction. I want to make a prediction right away that Donald Trump is going to fall. I, I don't want to go as far or be as bold as to say precipitously, but he's definitely going to feel um, some pain. And would you like to describe why you're making this prediction? Well, let's let's get into what happened during the entire debate. It, it just he didn't it, he didn't come across well. I right. mean, he, he came across just like everyone would expect Donald Trump to come across, but he didn't get the reaction like he did from the yokels in o- Ohio like he did last time. Right. So again, there was a B team debate before this debate. I don't know how long the B team debate was. Was it just an hour? Um, two, I think. Okay, two hours, and this one was three hours. Yeah, three hours. Holy which shit. is far too long. Exceedingly I mean, long. By hour two, we were kind of like, "Is this over yet?" I thought it was <laughs> over when they kept going. I'm like, "What in the fuck is going on?" Yeah, it was. It's too long. Too long. Even for a political nerd turd like me, I was dunzo. Right. Someone who enjoys hearing about this and seeing political debates and things. I was very bored. Yeah, no good. But Jake Tapper, who was the Yeah. Who was the debate moderator. California. Yeah. (laughs) For some reason he (laughs) was pronouncing California like that. I think (laughs) I think it's because he said Simi Valley California and he got confused like Simi uh, Valley California. I don't think that. I think it's because he saw Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> in the he was there. He was there. Yeah, the Terminator was there. Yeah. Terminator. Yeah. California. You're just all the voices he was, you can do. He was there and fucking California. So you think he was trying to kind of get on Arnold's level? No, I think he was like was making eye contact with Arnold Schwarzenegger and then it just naturally happened. Well, right. Let's just get into this. I'm Jake Tapper. We're live at the Ronald Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. <laughs> anyway, that's that's how it went down. So we're going to cover, I got like four clips to play of the B-team debate, which was a ridiculous fucking spectacle because there was four gentlemen on stage. Yeah, Bobby Jindal, Lindsey Graham. Pataki. Yeah, George Pataki. And uh, you said Bobby Rick Jindal. Santorum. And Rick Santorum. So there's four idiots on stage. And then the next debate, when they flip the script, is 11 asswipes on stage. 11. 11 people. Yeah. They they didn't need 11 people. It, it, sh- it, way, it could have been way better and more manageable if it was eight on either stage. Well, Jake Tapper did a pretty good job, I think, of keeping people in yeah. line and not letting them interrupt and... Yeah, well, let's uh, let's get into it. I think there was a lot more awesome attacks in the first video, in the, in the first debate. This first clip is... Governor, former governor of New York State, George Pataki, attacking Donald Trump, who wasn't even there, about how he's unfit to be president of the United States. Say this flat out. Donald Trump is unfit to be president of the United States or the Republican Party's nominee. Look at what he did in Atlantic City. He says he's going to make America great again. He invested four casinos in Atlantic City, and he said, essentially, I'm going to make Atlantic City great again. Every one of those casinos went bankrupt. Over 5,000 Americans lost their job. And you know people who, in this difficult economic time, have lost their job and the pain that causes. He didn't lose anything. 5,000 lost their jobs. He will do for America what he did for Atlantic City, and that is not someone we will nominate. Let me tell you, I wish that George Pataki would have handed off his barbs and his his lightning rod comments like that 
to someone who could have used them because George Pataki's riding high at about 0% in the polls. He doesn't have a chance, and that was good, good stuff that he could have handed off to you know Rand Paul or somebody else. But beautiful, a good start to the night. Uh, the next up is Re- uh, Rick Santorum, and we're really just going to kind of play what was notable for us. Not just attacks, though. There's some substantive policy arguments and disagreements uh, that, I, that we're going to cover. Next up is Rick Santorum and Lindsey Graham sparring over immigration. The peanut gallery on this is interesting. I have been trying to solve this problem for a decade. There are no Democrats here tonight. If you're here, raise your hand. You went to the wrong. Well, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, was that the bottom line, I'm that? trying to fix the problem. We're not going to deport 11 million people here illegally, but we will start with felons and off they go. As to the rest, you can stay, but you've got to learn our language. I don't speak it very well, but look how far I've come. <laughs> Speaking English is a good thing. You've got to pay taxes. You've got to pay a fine. You've got to get back in line. You've got to secure your border. They'll keep coming. If you don't control who gets a job, it never ends. We've got two borders, one with Canada, one with Mexico. I've never met an illegal Canadian. This is an economic problem. So, folks... Let's solve it. Amnesty is doing nothing, and that's what we've been doing. As to birthright citizenship, once we clean up this mess, in the future, prospectively, I'm willing to look at the following. There are people buying tourist visas Mm -hmm. that go to resorts with maternity wards for the express purpose of having a child here in America. They're rich Asians. They're rich people from the Mideast. Thank you, Senator. That, to me, is bastardizing citizenship. Thank you, Senator. Yeah, I'd like to stop that in the future. Governor Productive, I just want to – we'll we'll come back to you, uh, Senator Santorum, I promise. You mentioned my name and that I didn't have a plan. And the fact of the matter is that I did have a plan. Back in 2006, I introduced a plan called a Comprehensive Border Security Bill, which did, in fact – uh, put uh, the resources to build the fencing and, and, and deploy the troops and the technology necessary. What do you do with the to, 11 million? Uh, <laughs> as you know, Lindsay, what are you going to do with as, the 11 million? As you know, 40 to 60 percent of the 11 million are here on visa overstays. We know exactly who they are. We should know where they are, but we have a government that doesn't tell them to return home. You can solve half of the problem with the 11 million what by about simply the other telling. Half? By simply telling the 11 million that they have to return to their country of origin. So that's half your problem. How many Democrats now, now supported your plan? Anymore. How many Democrats did you have on your bill? I, I don't know how many Democrats I, I had on my bill. I can tell you none. But the, the, point is, it was, uh, it, the point is that I had a bill. And that I went been, nowhere. I, well, you're right, Lindsay. It went nowhere because we had a president back then who was uh, for more comprehensive immigration reform George than I George W. Was. Bush. That's right. Who won with Hispanics. You know what we need to Compared do to Lindsay, is doing. we need we need to win we need to win fighting for Americans. We need to win fighting for the workers Hispanics in this country who are hurting including are Hispanics. Americans. The people who are Le- hurt the most by illegal immigration are Hispanics. In my world the, Hispanics the, the, the are folks, Americans. The folks who uh, the folks who are hurt the worst are recent immigrants. By illegal immigrants coming to this country, last year alone, 700,000 illegal immigrants came into this country. Who do you think are most impacted? It's the folks who are, came into this country, played by the rules, did what they were supposed to do, came here and went to work, and now they're finding themselves out of work because someone illegally is willing to come in and work for less. I have a little different take on where the country is going on this issue. Number one, in 1950, there were 16 workers for every retiree. How many are there today? There's three. In 20 years, there's going to be two. 
And you're going to have 80 million baby boomers like me retire in mass wanting a Social Security check and the Medicare bills paid. We're going to need more legal immigration. Let's just make it logical. Let's pick people from all over the world on our terms, not just somebody from Mexico. Let's create a rational legal immigration system because we have a declining workforce. Thank you, Senator. Tom Thurmond had four kids after he's 67. <laughs> if you're not willing to do that, we better come up with a new legal immigration system. <laughs> and then Santorum proceeds to say, hey, I, I have seven kids. I'm doing my part. But Lindsey Graham, I think, for this B-team debate, and it's not hard to be first place when there's only four people, but I think Lindsey Graham ran away with this thing. He made some very solid, very poignant, and he also separated himself as not this radical, super far right-wing nut job like Santorum. Or like Jindal. Oh, for cert- cert- certainly like Jindal. And I think Pataki is more, more, more moderate as well. Well, they started, that's, that's the thing, they started to attack him, the, the other Santorum and and Jendel for sure, they started to attack Lindsey Graham about being so moderate and about how he doesn't always have something negative to say about Hillary Clinton and other Democrats. Ronald Reagan did a couple of really big things that we should all remember. He sat down with Tip O'Neill, the most liberal guy in the entire house. They started drinking together. That's the first thing I'm going to do as president. We're going to drink more. (laughs) And what did these two great Irishmen do? They found a way to save Social Security from bankruptcy by adjusting the age of retirement from 65 to 67. So, yes, I will say nice things at times about Democrats. Yes, I will work them, work with them. I will put the country ahead of party. Absolutely, I want to work with them. At the end of the day, Hugh, I'm lucky to be standing here. I'm the first in my family to ever go to college. Neither one of my parents finished high school. Darlene's here with me tonight. We owned a Thank restaurant. You, but wait a minute. We, we, Thank I understand. You, you asked me a question. This is important. Republicans need to tell the American people we get it as to who you are. It's not that important. I cut the clip off about 15 seconds. Uh, he goes on to say, like every other Republican, how... His family pulled him up in the bootstrap and lived in the back of the bar and over there. Darlene is his sister, by the way. That's right. Because he's not married. Never has been married. What's what's the problem with that, I'm just, Page? I'm just saying that that's the case. But something about Lindsey Graham, he's just very likable to he, me. He really is. Even though he, you know, I don't disagree with him. I mean, I don't agree what? with him about everything. Yeah, he's a nutter on what I... Many things. Yeah, uh, uh, for sure on defense... He acts like he's some red-blooded warrior when he was like a lawyer in the military. Anyway, so you don't agree with him on many things, but... Yeah, but I still... I like him. Like, there's something about him that is likable and relatable. And not just because he talked about how much he's going to drink if he gets elected. (laughs) um, Which the audience responded to quite quite well. Yeah. They were very excited by that. Yes, please get drunk in the White House, Mr. Graham. (laughs) Well, this final clip will wrap up with the first debate, and it is Governor Pataki, former governor of New York Pataki, and former senator from Pennsylvania, Rick Santorum, and they are sparring over the Supreme Court and their, the rule of the court, the role of the court, rather, um, where it relates to, I think, the Kim Davis thing. Mm-hmm. Sixteen years ago, this country was tremendously inspired by a young woman who faced a gunman in Columbine and was challenged about her faith, and she refused to deny God. 
We saw her as a hero. Today, someone who refuses to defy a judge's unconstitutional verdict is ridiculed and criticized, chastised, because she's standing up and denying, not denying her God and her faith. That is a huge difference in 16 years. People have a fundamental right in the First Amendment. There's no more important right. It is the right that is the trunk that all other rights come from, and that's the freedom of conscience. And when we say in America that we have no room, well, how many bakers, how many florists, how many pastors, how many clerks are we going to throw in jail? Because they stand up and say, I cannot violate what my faith says is against its teachings. Is there not room in America? I believe there has to be room. First, I believe we have to pass the First Amendment Defense Act, which provides that room for government officials and others who do not want to be complicit in what they believe is against their faith. Second. Before we get to second, Mr. Santorum, what if a pastor or a baker or one of these other occupations that you just listed, what if they're against their deeply held religious belief? We've said it before. I'll say it again. To not allow or to service someone who's going to marry another person of a different race. There's not a chance that Rick Santorum is going to stand there in defense of that. Well, it's also not out of the realm of possibility, right? We we often of talk not. about how, you know, members of the KKK, that is a Christian organization. That's right. And, you know, when Aryan Nations was located in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, they went... They wanted Christians to be on the grounds. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So there's some there's some um, exclusion criteria when it comes to the KKK, and it's no atheists allowed. Right. Well, and there's also he's not taking into account public accommodation. He's just not being very smart. We need as a president who's going to fight a court that is abusive, that has superseded their authority. Judicial supremacy is not in the Constitution, and we need a president and a Congress to stand up to a court when it exceeds its constitutional authority. Thank you, Senator. (laughs) Governor Pataki, your response. My response is uh, kind of, wow. You know, we're going to have a president who defies the Supreme Court because they don't agree. If they're wrong, uh, then you don't have the rule of law. No, what you have is judicial supremacy. You don't have a rule of law when the court has the final say on everything. The elected representatives of the people always have the opportunity to change that law. The Supreme Court makes a determination, but it's ultimately the elected officials who decide whether or not that would be accepted. By the way, if I have a chance to uh, lead this country, I will appoint judges who understand their role. They're not going to be making the law. They're going to be interpreting law that the elected officials passed. But there's a huge difference between an individual standing up and saying, I am going to stand for my religious freedom and my religious rights. I applaud that. This is America. You should be able to engage in your religious belief in the way you see fit. But when you're an elected official and you take an oath of office to uphold the law, all the laws, you cannot pick and choose or you no longer have a society that depends on the rule of law. Senator Santorum. Martin Luther King wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail. And he said in that letter that there are just laws and there are unjust laws. And we have no obligation to condone and accept unjust laws. 
And he had, and they, then he followed up and said, what's an unjust law? An unjust law is a law that, a law that go against the moral code or God's law or the natural law. I would argue that what the Supreme Court did is against the natural law, it's against God's law, and we have every obligation to stand in opposition to it. Jake? Yeah, I, I didn't agree with the Supreme Court's decision, but it is the law of this land. And I'm a great admirer of Martin Luther King, and he was prepared to break the law. But it wasn't in a, in a, an office of political power. It was civil disobedience, where what he was willing to do is voluntarily go to jail with his followers to send a message to the elected representatives that these laws were wrong and had to be changed. And because of his courage, we didn't ignore the courts. We changed the laws and made America a better place. That's the way to do it. Thank you, Governor. Let me tell you something, and that's the last clip. Uh, there were only two people on stage who, who really proved themselves as viable candidates relative to their views, and that would be Lindsey Graham and George Pataki. The other two, notice there's not even a Bobby Jindal clip, although he did say some stupid, stupid things <laughs> all surrounding... he. He said he agreed that Ahmed Mohammed, the little kid who who we talked about on the previous episode just a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. that he should have been arrested for making his clock. <laughs> Out of an abundance of caution, he should have been arrested. I don't know the exact quote. Maybe I should have downloaded that one. But we got a lot to get yeah, to. Yeah, hopefully you're certain about that. Well, he did. He okay. said it. He said it. All right. Anyway. It's also interesting being that Bobby Jindal is, you know, probably someone who is profiled. Yeah. Well, right? So he doesn't have the empathy or the understanding. Right. That's Well, that's what I mean. I mean, right. he's probably been a victim of discrimination and profiling. And you think that he would maybe yeah, you'd think have so. some empathy for that situation. But I want to I want to say one more thing about what Rick Santorum said. That Columbine story. Isn't that a myth? Of the girl who was asked if she believed in God before she was killed at Columbine. Oh, I don't know. I had no, always I kind know. of, I had always kind of heard that that story was like a myth. We'll have to check into that. That that would be interesting. I tried to Google it right now, but I'm having a difficult time. Well, maybe it's true then. All right, let's move on to the second A team varsity debate in our our present home state of California. So in the first debate, Donald Trump was asked about his temperament and whether or not he would be have the right temperament to be commander in chief and have access to the nuclear arsenal of the United States. First of all, Rand Paul shouldn't even be on this stage. He's number 11. He's got one percent in the polls and how he got up here. There's far too many people. Anyway, as far as temperament, and we all know that as far as temperament, I think I have a great temperament. I built a phenomenal business with incredible, iconic assets, uh, one of the really, truly great real estate businesses. And I may be an entertainer because I've had tremendous success with number one bestsellers all over the place, with The Apprentice and everything else I've done. But I will tell you this, what I am far and away greater than an entertainer is a businessman. And that's the kind of mindset this country needs to bring it back. Because we owe 19 trillion right now, 19 trillion dollars. And you need this kind of thinking to bring our country back. And believe me, my temperament is very good, very calm, but we will be respected outside of this country. We are not respected now. Mr. Senator Paul, your name has been invoked. I kind of have to laugh when I think of, hmm, sounds like a non sequitur. He was asked whether or not he would be capable and it would be in good hands to be in charge of the nuclear weapons and all of a sudden there's a sideways attack at me. 
I think that really goes to really the judgment. Do we want someone with that kind of character, that kind of careless language, to be negotiating with Putin? Do we want someone like that to be negotiating with Iran? I think really there's a sophomore quality that is entertaining about Mr. Trump. But I am worried. I'm very concerned about him having him in charge of the nuclear weapons because I think his response, his, his visceral response to attack people on their appearance, short, tall, fat, ugly, my goodness, that happened in junior high. Are we not way above that? And would we not all be worried to have someone like that in charge of the nuclear take, arsenal? Take the, Mr. Trump, I never attacked him on his look. And believe me, there's plenty of subject matter right there. That I can tell you. But Jake, Jake, I want to. So there's that sophomoric insult. <laughs> right. As soon as he gets charged with it, he backs it up and proves that he is like a child. Which, Rand Paul, he only responded with a smile and kind of a, yeah, you see what I'm saying? It was good. Right. He backed up his point. For sure. Well, Mr. Reasonable, as Brittany called him as soon as he spoke, this was the first foray into the conversation from John Kasich, current governor of the very important swing state of Ohio. You know, I, if I were sitting at home and watching this back and forth... I'd be inclined to turn it off. I mean, people at home want to know across this country, they want to know what we're going to do to fix this place, how we're going to balance a budget, how we're going to create more economic growth, how we're going to pay down the debt, what we're going to do to strengthen the military. So we've just spent We have a lot here. of issues coming well, up, but Wait a minute. With a lot of anhominum. Now, I know that it may be buzzing out there. But I think it's important we get to the issues because that's we what are the people the issues, want sir. and Thank they don't you. want all this fighting. Well, And that is who Brittany called Mr. Reasonable. Well, the only reason I didn't like what he said is because of Jake Tapper's reaction. And anytime JTAP is upset, I'm upset. <laughs> and he was very uncomfortable with that because it was almost like a dig on the questions that, well, that Jake Tapper was asking. It's, it's only because it was, I'm, I'm looking here on my notes to see when that, when that happened. That was 17 minutes in. That John Kasich, other than his opening statement, finally dug in there and said, hey, what are we doing here? We, let's get to the issues. Right. Which is good. And, and, and let me say, I, I give a J-tap, Jake Tapper, <laughs> I give him a lot of credit because he did a good job. He was in their face making sure they were uh, sticking to time, ignoring the ones who were trying to get his attention. He did a good job. One of the reasons Mr. Trump is a frontrunner, Republican voters say, is because they like the fact that he is not, not bought and paid for by wealthy donors. Mr. Trump has repeatedly said that the $100 million you've raised for your campaign makes you a puppet for your donors. Are you? No, absolutely not. People are supporting me because I have a proven record of conservative leadership, where I cut taxes, $19 billion over eight years. We shrunk the state government workforce. We created a climate that led the nation in job growth seven out of eight years. We were one of two states to go to AAA bond rating. People know that we need principle-centered leadership, a disruptor to go to Washington, D.C. The one guy that had some special interests that I know of that tried to get me to change my views on something that was generous and gave me money was Donald Trump. He wanted casino gambling in Florida. I didn't want Yes, you did. Totally false. You wanted it, and you, you didn't get to, it, I because I was it. opposed to casino I, gambling I before, I during, and after. And that's not, I'm not going to be bought by I anybody. I promise, if I wanted it, I would have gotten it. No way, Ben. 
Believe me. Nope. I know my Not people. Not even possible. I know my people. Is there anything else you want to say about this? No, I just uh, will tell you that, you know, Jeb made the statement. I'm not only referring to him. I, a lot of money was raised by a lot of different people that are standing up here. And the donors, the special interests, the lobbyists have very strong power over these people. I'm spending all of my money. I'm not spending, I'm not getting any. I turned down, I, I turned down so much. I could have right now from special interests and donors, I could have double and triple what he's got. I've turned it down. I've turned down last week $5 million from somebody. So I will tell you, I understand the game. I've been on the other side all of my life, and they have a lot of control over our politicians. And I don't say that favorably, and I'm not sure if there's another system, but I say this, I am not accepting any money from anybody. Nobody has control of me other than the people of this country. Governor I'm going to do the right thing. You, you got, according to, your, uh, to what you said on one of the talk shows, you got Hillary Clinton to go to your wedding That's because true. you gave her That's money. True. Maybe it works for Hillary Clinton. I was, excuse it doesn't me, work Jeff, for anybody on, Jeff, this, on this stage. I was a this, businessman. I got along with Clinton. I got along with everybody. Yeah. That was my job, to get along with people. But the I simple didn't fact wanna, is... Excuse me. One second. No. I the didn't want to... Oh, you good. cannot take... More energy tonight. I like no. that. Look. I was asked the question. I didn't want... It was my obligation as a businessman, to my family, to my company, to my employees, to get along with all politicians. I got along with all of them, and I did a damn good job in doing it. Go ahead. So, he supports Pelosi, he supports Schumer, he supports Clinton. Got along when with he, everybody. And he, when, he asked, when he asked Florida to have casino gambling, we said no. Wrong. We said no, and that's the simple fact. The don't, simple don't fact make things is, up, Jim. Don't, don't make cut me off, Come sir. on, don't make things Jake, up. Jake, can I say something about that? Oh, uh, Jake, uh, hey, I'm, I have something to say. I'm, I'm Ben Carson, and I, I'm just over here in a corner and kind of sad. No, nobody's, nobody's talking to me. I'm, I'm hey, ready to say something. Hey, Jake. Uh, hey, <laughs> hey, uh, Eeyore. Ben Carson just <laughs> makes me want to take a nap. So Donald Trump was the face-making machine for this entire debate. He was, but but I want to pause for a second and talk about what political what PolitiFact has to say about um, this kind of disagreement that was going on between Donald Trump and Jeb Bush. So Jeb Bush said, when he, Donald Trump, asked Florida to have casino gambling, we said no. PolitiFact gives this a mostly true. So that's that's as good as is true for me. Yes. Mostly true. Right. So basically, we can just accept it as Donald Trump was lying and Jeb Bush is telling the truth. Right. Uh, Trump spokeswoman Hope Hicks declined to provide any evidence to refute Bush's claim. A spokeswoman for Bush referred us to us as in PolitiFact. I'm part of their organization now to a September 1st (laughs) CNN article headlined Jeb Bush, the man who killed Trump's casino dreams. Nice. So... Yeah, but but Donald Trump was making a lot of faces. There was a vine that CNN put up that I sh- have shared to the Facebook page. So if you go look at it, it's pretty funny. Yeah, very funny. <laughs> very, very I funny. I mean, it's funny and also disturbing because I can just imagine him like meeting with Vladimir Putin and making that face. Yeah, it's stupid. All right, well, listen, uh, Carly Fiorina actually performed very well very strategic and very intelligently in this debate. She, this next clip is her, and she, it's kind of a sly dig on Donald Trump where it relates to the, the Soleimani, General Soleimani of the, the Quds forces in Iran, the question that was asked of him by Hugh Hewitt, 
and uh, she kind of slyly gets it in there. Carly Fiorina. Having... Miss Fiorina... Having met, met Vladimir yeah, Putin, met Vladimir if Putin. I may, having yes. met Vladimir Putin, I wouldn't talk to him at all. We've talked way too much to him. What I would do immediately is begin rebuilding the Sixth Fleet. I would begin rebuilding the missile defense program in Poland. I would conduct regular, aggressive military exercises in the Baltic states. I'd probably send a few thousand more troops into Germany. Vladimir Putin would get the message. By the way, the reason it is so critically important that every one of us know General Soleimani's name is because Russia is in Syria right now because the head of the Quds Force traveled to Russia and talked Vladimir Putin into aligning themselves with Iran and Syria to prop up Bashar al-Assad. Russia is a bad actor, but Vladimir Putin is someone we should not talk to because the only way he will stop is to sense strength and resolve on the other side. And we have all of that within our control. We could rebuild the Sixth Fleet. I will. We haven't. We could rebuild the missile defense program. We haven't. I will. We could also, to Senator Rubio's point, give the Egyptians what they've asked for, which is intelligence. We could give the Jordanians what Thank they've you, asked Senator. for, bombs and materiel. We have not supplied Thank it. You. I will. We could arm the Kurds. They've been asking us for three years. All of this is within our control. Thank you, Ms. Fiorina. JTAP said thanks. Stop talking. (laughs) Let me tell you something about uh, the lady, the only lady on the stage. She's kicking ass. That was a very impressive display of an understanding of foreign policy. Whether it's memorized or whatever, she knows when to get in there and mix it up. And she's, she's speaking, she's speaking the language of a Republican electorate well it's like when donald trump was on hugh hewitt's show and he said do you know the players without a scorecard trump right and i think carly fiorina was illustrating in that moment hey i know the players without a scorecard i I know all these names i've met these people i mean well she knows but she knows which divisions of the navy are patrolling which areas on the globe she's She's got her shit together. She understands that troop movement, you know, putting in a few thousand more troops into Germany, that Russia's intelligence agencies, they're going to know that's happening. And it's a subtle, very nuanced way to get a message to Vladimir Putin. Right. And according to 538, Nate Silver asked all of the people that were live blogging with him, I think it was 12 people in total, to give a grade um, from an A to an F for each candidate and how they feel they performed in the debate. And Fiorina, average grade A, high grade A+, plus, low grade A-. Minus. Oh, and wow. she's the only one with marks that high. Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> I, well, <laughs> That was a reluctant uh, no, agreement. No, I just... It, the, no one else got that high of marks. That's the problem I would have with it because I... And it's not because of my bias, but I do believe that John Kasich also... Did very, very well. Wow. They gave Kasich the average grade of a C plus. Yeah, I don't I don't agree with that. Yeah, he's, I think, he's below Trump. I think maybe they are. See, that's crazy. Come on. All right, let's move on before I get pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, well, next up is 29 minutes in, just over 29 minutes in, and Ted Cruz was finally asked a question about the Iran nuclear deal. The next president, no matter who he or she may be, will inherit President Obama's Iran deal. Senator Cruz, Governor Kasich says that anyone who is promising to rip up the Iran deal on day one, as you have promised to do, is, quote, inexperienced and, quote, 
playing to a crowd. Respond to Governor Kasich, please. Well, let me tell you, Jake, the single biggest national security threat facing America right now. Yeah, yeah, see, listen, I got to tell you about that Iran nuclear deal, see? Okay. And also, that's enough. L- well, let me tell you something about uh, about the lovely and talented Ted Cruz. You mean the slimy yeah, what Ted a, Cruz? He is a skeevy skeeve hole. Every time he is on screen, it's just, I'm, uh, well, I can't handle it. Every other candidate is looking at the moderator who asked the question. <laughs> and Ted Cruz finds the camera with the red light and stares straight into it like he's talking to me. And it's too intimate. Well, it's too, <laughs> it, it's too much because no one else is doing it. It's just him. Yeah. Is the threat of a nuclear Iran. We've seen six and a half years of President Obama yeah. leading from behind. Yeah. Weakness is provocative. And this Iranian nuclear deal is nothing short of catastrophic. <laughs> this deal on its face will send over $100 billion to the Ayatollah Khamenei, making the Obama administration the world's leading financier of radical Islamic terrorism. This deal abandons four American hostages in Iran, and this deal will only accelerate Iran's acquiring nuclear weapons. You better believe it. If I am elected president on the very first day in office, I will rip to shreds this catastrophic Iranian nuclear deal. The only thing he said there that I agree with is the fact that we did not negotiate for our, the prisoners that are there in Iran. Everything else is ah, fucking claptrap. So PolitiFact fact-checked the the Iran deal will facilitate and accelerate the nation of Iran acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, he said this a couple days ago, so apparently this is a repeated talking point. Of course. And they rated this as false. Just straight up false. Right. So it's not pants on fire, but it's false. So they kind of recap what the deal will do. So first, let's recap what the deal will do. (laughs) (laughs) Broadly speaking, Iran would acquire... Iran would agree to accept strict curbs on nuclear technologies and intrusive access by nuclear weapons inspectors for 10 to 25 years, with a pledge to abide by existing international treaties limiting its nuclear ambitions in perpetuity. In exchange, international economic sanctions against Iran would be lifted, as long as Iran doesn't cheat. If Iran did cheat, sanctions could be imposed. Which is almost exactly what this next clip says with my boy, John Kasich, who says something rational and reasonable, much like your humble host, what he believes... I mean, I'm making jokes here, but really, I think I agree 100% with what John Kasich is getting ready to say. I want to say something about what Senator just said. And then it'll no be one my is turn. no. Let me let me suggest to you, we believe that we operate better in the world when our allies work with us. President Bush did it in the Gulf War. We work better when we are unified. Secondly, nobody's trust in Iran. They violate the deal. We put on the sanctions. And we have the high moral ground to talk to our allies in Europe to get them to go with us. If they don't go with us, we slap the sanctions on anyway. If they fund these radical groups that threaten Israel and all the West, then we should rip up the deal and put the sanctions back on. And let me make it clear. Let me make it clear. If we think think they're getting close to to developing a nuclear weapon and we get that information, you better believe that I would do everything in my power as the commander-in-chief to stop them having a nuclear weapon. We can have it and we can have our allies and we can be strong as a country 
and we can project across this globe with unity, not just doing it alone. That is not what gets us where we want to get as a nation. So according to this PolitiFact article, the deal includes intrusive access by nuclear weapons inspectors for 10 to 25 years. Right. So that means people are going in there and checking up on the sitch. Right. It's the IAEA. It's not... Iran self-checking themselves. And so when Ted Cruz says, well, how how are we going to know? How are we going to know? That's why it's part of the deal. It's worked into the deal. Right. It's the International Atomic Energy Agency. Fuckhole. I mean, Senator Cruz. And... (laughs) And scientists say if Iran were to abide by these rules for 10 years, it would take them at least 12 months to build a weapon. Right. So it's it's putting some distance. It's putting some time in between them and the nuclear weapons. But Ted Cruz is trying to say that the deal with Iran is going to facilitate and accelerate the, the right. creation of nuclear weapons. And what doesn't make sense about that is... Well, everything, but but that he would think (laughs) that he would be telling people and that people would believe that the president of the United States would make a deal where that's the end result. Right. Well, here's the way I look at it is if we don't make a deal with Iran, then they do have unfettered progress in front of them to to get access to the technologies and the ability for a nuclear weapon. If we make a deal with them, at least we have boots on the ground, inspectors on the ground, and eyeballs on exactly what they're doing. Intrusive access. Yeah, it doesn't fucking make any. It doesn't make any sense. Like I said, the only mistake I see that was made is that we didn't negotiate for the people who are imprisoned right now by the government of Iran. All right. Well, next up is finally they get to the question of Carly Fiorina responding to Trump's comment about her face last week in rolling stone magazine donald trump said the following about you quote look at that face would anyone vote for that can you imagine that the face of our next president mr trump later said he was talking about your persona not your appearance please feel free to respond what you think about his persona (laughs) you know it's interesting to me mr trump said that he heard mr bush very clearly and what Mr. Bush said. I think women all over this country heard very clearly what Mr. Trump said. I think she's got a beautiful face and I think she's a beautiful woman. All right, on that note. Go ahead, sorry. In that moment... We're both champing at the bit to get in there. <laughs> Carly Fiorina does not respond whatsoever, facially or otherwise. Right. When he says that, she maintains just the same stoic look. It's not like, oh, thank you. Thanks for no. saying that. It's just, fuck you, man. Yeah, it's... But not even hateful. It's just blank. No, yeah. It's just not even like... She didn't even hear it. But the thing is, is where's this Trump who tells it like it is, and he's not PC, and he's not going to back down, and... That's bullshit, because what he said was, look at that face. Can you imagine that face being our president, being a hateful cock? And then what's he do here? <laughs> oh, I think you're beautiful. No. Blah. Right. Well, and he he proved earlier in the debate that he's not above attacking people's appearances when he made that comment to Rand Paul. Right. So, By the way, and Rand Paul, is he's not an ugly goof. I think he's a handsome guy. Yeah, if, he's a handsome if, guy. If, if we're rating the handsomeness of dudes. 
if he got rid of the perm yeah <laughs> if he got a haircut <laughs> that would vastly improve things well this, this, this next is a question that was posed to donald trump about how much will his deportation plan cost and how it will work that is the question how much is your deportation plan going to cost America, and how exactly is it going to work? If you note, when you listen to the clip, there is no answer given. No answer. Mr. Trump, you have called for deporting every undocumented immigrant. Governor Christie has said, quote, there are not enough law enforcement officers, local, county, state, and federal combined, to forcibly deport 11 to 12 million people. Tell Governor Christie how much your plan will cost and how you will get it done. Correct. First of all, I want to build a wall, a wall that works. So important, and it's a big part of it. Second of all, we have a lot of really bad dudes in this country from outside, and I think Chris knows that maybe as well as anybody. They go, if I get elected, first day, they're gone. Gangs all over the place, Chicago, Baltimore, no matter where you look. We have a country based on laws. I will make sure that those laws are adhered to. These are illegal immigrants. I don't think you'd even be asking this question if I didn't run. Because when I ran and I brought this up at my opening remarks at Trump Tower, I took heat like nobody has taken heat in a long time. And then they found out with the killing of Kate from San Francisco and so many other crimes they found out that I was right. And most people, many people, apologized to me. I don't think you'd even be talking about illegal immigration if it weren't for me. So we have a country of laws. They're going to go out and they'll come back if they deserve to come back. If they've had a bad record, if they've been arrested, if they've been in jail, they're never coming back. We're going to have a country again. Right now, we don't have a country, we don't have a border, and we're going to do something about it. And it can be done with proper management, and it can be done with heart. No answer. How much is it going to cost? Didn't say. How exactly is he going to do it? Didn't say. Let me tell you, 11 million people, to deport 11 million people over the course of the 48 months of a presidency of one term, that is 200 let me get it right here. That is 229,166 people per month. How in the fiddle and fuck hole is Donald Trump going to deport 230,000 people a month? Logistically, how is that done? That's outrageously... Who? What is he? Adolf Hitler? Is he just going to load him up on, on, on boxcars? And send them wherever? A couple of things. He wrote The Art of the Deal. Number one business book of all time. And Believe me. He's Believe a, me. He's not Hitler, but he, he's a Presbyterian. He's a Protestant. He's a tremendous Presbyterian. Tremendous. Yeah. He likes his little cracker, his little wine. He's tremendous. I guess I shouldn't have said those things, because then it just launches into you doing Donald Trump impersonations, <laughs> which is... Becoming quite difficult to handle. You're not a fan, huh? Oh, I'm a fan. It's just... (laughs) (laughs) See, you finished my sentence. I said, it's just, and then you played that. That was great. Thank you. Yeah, I did. We haven't had CeeLo in a long time. A long time. 
So next up, Dana Bash, who was, I guess, CNN's chief political correspondent. She asked Jeb Bush about Trump and whether he went too far when he invoked the name of Jeb Bush's Mexican-American wife. Governor Bush, Mr. Trump has suggested that your views on immigration are influenced by your Mexican-born wife. He said that, quote, if my wife were from Mexico, I think I would have a soft spot for people from Mexico. Did Mr. Trump go too far in invoking your wife? He did. He did. Um, you're proud of your family, just as I am. Correct. To subject my wife into the middle of a raucous political conversation was completely inappropriate. And I hope you apologize for that, Donald. Well, I have to tell you, I hear phenomenal things. I hear your wife is a lovely woman. She is. I she's don't fantastic. Know her, and Tremendous. She is, is absolutely the love of my life, and she's right here. And why don't Good. you apologize Good. for her No, I won't right do that now. because I said nothing yeah. wrong, but I do hear so she's a lovely woman. So here's the deal. My wife is a Mexican-American. She's an American by choice. She loves this country as much as anybody in this room. And she wants a secure border, but she wants to embrace the traditional American values that make us special and make us unique. We're at a crossroads right now. Are we going to take the Reagan approach, the hopeful, optimistic approach, the approach that says that you come to our country legally, you pursue your dreams with a vengeance, you create opportunities for all of us, or the Donald Trump approach? The approach that Anna. says that everything is bad, that everything is coming to an end. I, Mr. Trump, I'm Jeb on the Reagan side of this. That they come into our country as an act of love. With all of the problems that we have in so many instances, we have wonderful people coming in. But with all of the problems, this is not an act of love. He's weak on immigration. By the way, in favor of Common Core, which is also a disaster. <laughs> what? But weak on immigration. He doesn't get my vote. He, what? Wait, what? He's... I don't understand. Why did he even bring up Common Core, which is an education program? It's a standard for education. Um, what does that have to do with immigration? Well, it's wherever he can get a dig in. He wants to get a dig in, and he's sitting in front of an audience full of Republicans. Right? Who don't? Who don't? I think he saw he was slipping. He he had lost the audience. The other thing is, is when Jeb Bush talks about an act of love coming into this country illegally, it is an act of love. It's how am I going to provide for the family for whom I have deep affection and loyalty and love? I know what I'll do. I'll sneak in, whether it be legally or, or illegally. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break into the United States because it's the land of opportunity. It is an act of love. Illegal, but it's, it's love. It's out of love and out of desperation for supporting their families. And so you're hearing a lot from Trump and Bush. And the people who talked the most during the debate were Trump, Bush, and Fiorina. Uh, Trump got the most direct questions with 13, Bush had nine, and Fiorina had six, and then it just goes down from there. Which is bizarre to me, because Fiorina, is, she was at the outer edge of the candidates, because she's only sitting at like 3%. Right, but she got more questions than Rubio and Carson. Right. And Carson is number two in the polls. Yeah. It, it, it was not equitable relative to the polling, which... You know, I don't know if it should be or not. I'm not going to make that judgment. And I'm happy with the way it turned out. And we're only going to cover the ones that struck a chord with me. So, so. and F Fiorina did. She she dealt well with what she was given. And you know, who's, who's somebody I, who I think is a terrible public speaker, 
but who didn't do as well as I thought he was going to, that's Jeb Bush. He just, I think he's wrong on a lot of stuff, and he uh, he didn't impress me at all. He is wrong on a lot of stuff, but I think he did better this time than last time. He did a good job of not looking angry, uh, not you know getting red and and looking like he was feeling very hostile. There was one point where he kind of gave Donald Trump a low five. That was a fucking and it was aggressive. Aggressive. He put his. He put his hips into it to smash his hand. I mean, it's like he was imagining it was Donald Trump's face. Yeah. And he was punching him in the face. I mean, it was a very aggressive smacking of his hand. All right. Well, in this next clip, Dana Bash continues asking Trump about him having criticized Jeb Bush for speaking Spanish on the campaign trail. Okay. On that note, you have criticized Governor Bush for speaking Spanish on the campaign trail. You said, quote, he should really set an example by speaking English in the United States. What's wrong with speaking well, Spanish? Well, I think it's wonderful and all, but I did it a little bit half-heartedly, but I do mean it to a large extent. What? We have a country where to assimilate, you have to speak English. And I think that where he was and the way it came out didn't sound right to me. We have to have assimilation to have a country. We have to have assimilation. We do? I'm not the first one to say this, Dana. We've had many people over the years, for many, many years, saying the same thing. This is a country where we speak English, not Spanish. Well, I'm, I've been speaking English here tonight, and I'll keep speaking English. But the simple fact is, if a, college, if a high school kid asked me a question in Spanish, a, a, a school, by the way, a voucher program that was created under my watch, the largest voucher program in the country where kids can go to a Christian school and they ask me a question in Spanish, I'm going to show respect and answer that question in Spanish, Dan. even though they do speak English and even though they embrace American values. This was a reporter, not a high school kid, by the way. Dana, I- so, and that's when Marco Rubio, of course, jumps in and goes, hey, Dana, by the way, I speak Spanish and my dad spoke Spanish and he didn't know how to speak English and I grew up and he was a Cuban immigrant. <laughs> Also, her name's not Dana. It's Dana. Dana Bash. Right. I'm calling her Dana Bash. No, Marco Rubio said Dana. <laughs> Dana. <laughs> right. Her name's not Dana. Well, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio's probably not a not a CNN watcher. He's probably a Fox News guy. Marco, and I don't have that clip loaded up. Marco Rubio, huh? Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> so you know he's. Uh, well, what's disturbing about that whole we speak English here is, you know, what does Donald Trump want to do? Does he want to have people stop learning foreign languages? Right. Uh, that seems very odd. Uh, when he goes and he travels and he's networking, I mean, the most questions that were asked were foreign policy questions. There were 16 foreign policy questions. Um, it just it's just it fucking smacks of xenophobia. I mean. Aren't all of his wives foreign? Yeah, I mean, you is it not a good thing to know different languages and yes. be able to communicate with various individuals? I just don't understand how he's like, you need to assimilate. You need to assimilate. It's, what? It, for me, it's a sign of education. It's a sign of culture, if you know more than one language. Yeah. It's the one thing I really admire about the Mormons, is so many of them are, are bilingual because they go on those goddamn missions. <laughs> good for them. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, JTAP is back in action. God damn it, Brittany. JTAP. Jake Tapper is back in action talking to Ben Carson about amnesty and his views on amnesty relative to immigration. And then at the very end of the clip, very weird, 
Ted Cruz just starts talking and just aggressively licking the balls of Donald Trump for no reason. It doesn't make any sense because I bet you they're big and orange and sweaty. So I must have missed this because I didn't see this happen. Oh, just wait. Okay. Just wait. This week, we learned more about Dr. Carson's plan for the 11 to 12 million undocumented immigrants in this country. Dr. Carson proposed giving these undocumented immigrants a six-month grace period to pay back taxes, then to let them become guest workers, and only to deport people who fail to do that. Not exactly Under what your, I said. Well, how would you say it, sir? I was just reading the Wall Street Journal quote, but please tell us. <laughs> well, what I said, after we sell the borders... After we turn off the spigot that dispenses all the goodies so we don't have people coming in here, including employment, that people who had a pristine record, we should consider allowing them to become guest workers primarily in the agricultural sphere, because that's the place where Americans don't seem to want to work. That's what I said. And they have a six-month period to do that. If they don't do it within that time period, then they become illegal and as illegals, they will be treated as such. Okay, from the horse's mouth. Senator Cruz. Here we go. Does that fit your definition of amnesty? Well, Jake, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that Donald Trump's being in this race has forced the mainstream media finally mm. to talk about illegal immigration. Them balls are good. I think that's very important. I like and respect Ben Carson. I'll let him talk about his own plans. But I will say this, the natural next question that primary voters are asking after we focus on illegal immigration is okay. You didn't see that happen, huh? I did not. <laughs> but I'm not surprised because Ted Cruz and Donald Trump are buddy-buddy. Yeah, it's, it's strange to me. It's almost, to me, like Ted Cruz knows that he has no fucking chance at the nomination, but he wants to sidle up to Donald Trump and maybe get a cabinet position out of the deal by never speaking ill of him. And not only not speaking ill, but, you know, getting a good sniff of his butthole at any time that he can by brown nosing. It's definitely um, unsettling the way that you're describing it. I'm disturbed. I don't think you need to do that with the, the patrons. Views and opinions expressed by Jesse Dollarmore are solely those of Jesse Dollarmore and do not reflect the views and opinions of Brittany Page, who is a far superior person and much more measured and reasonable in her views and analysis. No? All right. Well, there it is. So next up was something that Carly Fiorina said that I actually I wanted to talk about. And it's kind of substantive and kind of not really policy, but... It brings up a very good point about where we are with our broken immigration system and how the Democrats haven't done anything to fix it, which kind of points to maybe their lack of motivation or desire to do so, even though they talk all the time about wanting to do something. Ms. Fiorina, the vast majority of countries do not have birthright citizenship. Donald Trump is right about that. Why is it pandering when he says this? First, let me say we have just spent a good bit of time discussing as Republicans how to solve this problem. I would ask your audience at home to ask a very basic question. Why have Democrats not solved this problem? President Obama campaigned She's in whistling while she works. 2008 on solving the immigration problem. He entered Washington with majorities in the House and the Senate. He could have chosen to do anything to solve this, pro this problem. Instead, he chose to do 
Nothing. Why? Because the Democrats don't want this issue solved. Ms. They want it to be an issue Ms. that they can use. Ms. As to why, why? She's like Stewie on Family Guy. Cool whip. Uh, but she has a good point: <laughs> is that uh, Obama came into office and had a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate, which means he controlled two branches of government: the legislative and the executive branch. And they fucking did nothing about immigration. They want it to be a political issue. They don't really, they're not really passionate about solving the problem of immigration in our country. That is pretty judgmental. Well, I've got the facts on my side. What do you got? <laughs> I agree with you. So um, <laughs> I'm. All right. Well, next up is Trump on Fiorina's. Success as a CEO or her <laughs> failure, as he would put it. I was going to say success. Are you putting that in quotes? Or? They, they just kind of generally go back and forth on, on uh, one another's resumes. The head of the Yale Business School, Jeffrey Sonderfeld, wrote a paper recently, one of the worst tenures for a CFO, CEO that he has ever seen, ranked one of the top 20 in the history of business. The company is a disaster and continues to be a disaster. They still haven't recovered. In fact, today on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, they fired another 25 or 30,000 people saying we still haven't recovered from the catastrophe. When Carly says the revenues went up, that's because she bought Compaq. It was a terrible deal, and it really led to the destruction of the company. Now, one other company before that was Lucent. Carly was at Lucent before that. And Lucent turned out to be a catastrophe also. So I only say this. She can't run any of my companies. That I can tell you. <laughs> Ms. Marina, I want to give you a chance uh, to respond. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld is a well-known Clintonite and honestly headed out for me from the moment that I arrived at Hewlett-Packard. But honestly, Mr. Trump, I find it quite rich that you would talk about this. You know, there are a lot of us Americans who believe that we are going to have trouble someday paying back the interest on our debt because politicians have run up mountains of debt using other people's money. That, that is, in fact, precisely the way you read, ran your casinos. You ran up mountains of debt as well as losses using other people's money, and you were forced to file for bankruptcy not once, I never not twice, for times, a record four times. Why should we trust you Mr. to manage you why, the finances of this nation you, any differently than you manage running, the finances Carly, of your casinos? Carly, Carly. Mr. Trump. Is he saying darling? No, Carly, Carly, oh, Carly. Okay. I took one of my one of my headphones off because it's nope. like she's the referee of a basketball game. No, she's just standing near Donald Trump and it's, she's got a rape whistle in her mouth at all times because he's such a creeper. The, it's like a, a whistle after every word she says. I wonder if the listeners are going to hear that, but it's it's very much yeah. hurting my ears with yeah. the headphones on. It's a bummer. Well, in response to this back and forth, Chris Christie. He got in there and he... This is the first time we're hearing from him I, on I the show. I think so, yeah. He got in there and he uh, he let him know what he thinks about their their talk of their accomplishments and their resumes and who they are. Governor Christie's name has been invoked. I'd like to give him the 30-second opportunity. While I'm as entertained as anyone by this personal back and forth about the history of Donald and Carly's career, for the 55-year-old construction worker out in that audience tonight who doesn't have a job, who can't fund his child's education, i got to tell you the truth. They could care less about your careers. They care about theirs. Let's start talking about that Jake. on this stage. Jake. And, stop playing, and stop playing the games. 
Governor Stop there's, there's, there's John, a, I'm not done yet, John. A track Sorry. record of stop, leadership uh, is not stop, a game. And stop it is playing, the issue and in Carly, this election. Carly, listen, you can interrupt everybody else on this stage. You can't interrupt me, okay? The fact is that we don't want to hear about your careers back and forth and volleying back and forth about who did well and who did poorly. You're both successful people. Congratulations. You know who's not successful? The middle class in this country who's getting plowed over by Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Let's start talking about the O's issues tonight and stop this childish back and forth between the two of you. Ms. Fiorina, I want to give you... Well, Governor Kasich does get his moment. He does get his time to shine. And it is right now when he responds to that. Donald Trump says that the hedge fund guys are getting away with murder by paying a lower tax rate. He wants to raise the taxes of hedge fund managers, as does Governor Bush. Do you agree? I don't at this point in terms of changing the incentives for investment and risk taking. But let's just stop for a second. There's one person on this stage that does have a record. I'm the only person on the stage and one of the few people in this country that led the effort as the chief architect of the last time we balanced the federal budget. We also cut taxes. And when I left Washington in 2000, we had a $5 trillion surplus and the economy was booming. I'd spent 10 years of my life to get us to that point. Went out in the private sector, it was a great experience, and went into Ohio and took an $8 billion hole and turned it into a $2 billion surplus We've had the largest amount of tax cuts of any sitting governor. We have grown well over 300,000 jobs. You see, I've done it in both places. I'm the only one here that's done it in both places. It took a lot to get us to a balanced budget. It was legitimate, it was real, and we negotiated it. A lot of what we're talking about here tonight is, I'm going to take this position and that position. You know what? At the end of the day, America's got to work. We've got to figure out how we come together to deal with this, with our fiscal problems, because when we deal with that, we create a stronger econo- economy for everybody. People have a chance to rise. So, you know, when we think about how we make a choice, it's the person that lands that plane. It's not somebody that talks about it. It's about the person who's done it. And I've done Thank it you, in Governor. both places, and I did it, including people in the other party, and that's how we were successful, you, and that's how I will be president, Governor. using that experience to drive this country forward. Yeah, well. Again, he's he's too reasonable. Well, here's the deal. <laughs> is if the Republican Party, and goddamn, I hope they're out there listening right now. The, if the Republican Party really wants a winner on their hands, they're going to choose a guy like Kasich, who is the governor who will not lose in Ohio. And you need Ohio if you want to win the presidency. I just, it's unfortunate that... You know, so many people are not forward thinking when it comes to this issue and instead, you know, laugh every time Donald Trump insults someone's face. That's right. Yeah. I saw after he made that comment about Carly Fiorina's face, I saw multiple comments on Facebook from, you know, strangers because I like to read, you know, stranger responses to like Time magazine articles. (laughs) And people were saying, oh, he officially has my vote. Like that is what officially. Well, uh, here's the deal is they're just fucking trolls. They're not really going to vote. They're dickbags. There's a lot of dickbags out there (laughs) who are emboldened by anonymity on the Internet. I think the later it gets, the more vulgar you get. Well, it's very late. (laughs) It's very late. I think we're starting to get delirious at this point. Yeah, well, this is our second long podcast in one day, and I'm just taking it out on the Patreon supporters <laughs> is what I'm doing, I guess. Sorry about that, guys. So next up is Ben Carson talking about the minimum wage, and the reason oh, I'm, God. I'm including this because 
he actually said some stuff that I, I was, uh, let's talk about it. No, I'm just saying I don't need his leading meditation voice right now. Maybe, well, it's going to seriously <laughs> put me to sleep, but here's Droopy Dog, everybody. <laughs> yeah, this is Ben Carson, everybody, talking about the minimum wage. Dr. Carson, Governor Walker didn't really answer the question, but I'll let you respond. He called <laughs> raising the federal minimum wage lame. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, let me say what I actually said about raising the minimum wage. Uh, I was asked, should it be raised? I said, probably or possibly. But what I added, which I think is the most important thing, is I said we need to get both sides of this issue to sit down and talk about it, negotiate a reasonable minimum wage, and index that so that we never have to have this conversation again in the history of America. I think we also have to have two minimum wages, a starter and a sustaining, because how are young people ever going to get a job if you have such a high minimum wage that it, it, it makes it impractical to hire them? I don't know exactly what he means by starter or sustaining, but the way I understand it, just by trying to figure it out through his Eeyore sad guy just crazy relaxed dude who's on the lewds maybe he and bill cosby are a lot better friends than we think (laughs) um is that a a starting minimum wage would be like for a teenager but a sustained wage would be for someone who is like an adult who has a family to support so there's two levels of a minimum wage and i think although i haven't really thought it out and i'm not an economics guy it seems like a relatively reasonable position And then indexing the minimum wage against whatever economic factor, whether it be inflation or whatever, you know, or or some measure against GDP or economic growth or whatever, if you're to index it against that, so it always is fluctuating higher and higher based on the economy, and you don't have to keep readdressing it. And in those periods of time, let's say we do it every 10 years or every 15 years, Well, toward the end of that period, let's say you did it in 1990 and then you do it again in 2000. Well, in that eighth, ninth, and tenth year, those people who are earning minimum wage are really getting, they're getting the shitty end of the deal. Where, like, if we switch the minimum wage right now to $15, in the first couple years, those people who are earning that $15, they're getting the most bang for their dollar that they're earning. And then in another 10 years, am I making any fucking sense? I think you're almost like talking yourself out of thinking that what Ben Carson said is a good idea. I don't know that it's a good idea. It's just interesting to me. Yeah. And I'm also, maybe I'm a little shocked that I'm I'm being swayed by anything mm-hmm. that the, the good doctor has to say. Well, I, I would just be concerned with, I mean, I guess if that would be something that's enacted, there would be you know, hard and fast rules assigned to what the criteria would be for who gets what, because who's going to be the arbiter of that decision? I mean, is it just going to be up to the employer? No, 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 no. It would be a government regulation thing. Right. That's what he's saying. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I think it's worth looking into. It's certainly not just to be discarded out of hand because he said it and he's an idiot. So, uh, Well, he's not an idiot. It's just that he doesn't always say the smartest things. He's not a policy wonk. Listen, he's a doctor. If I have conjoined twins that need to be separated, I'll go to him. <laughs> when I need an immigration policy, he's not usually the guy that I'm going to try to talk to about solving such a complex issue. I don't know if we're there yet, but you know, for being a doctor, I was very disappointed with 
the vaccine discussion. Oh, we're not there yet. Okay. We, we will get there. Okay. And then you're going to rant and rave. Okay. There's also a, an entire marijuana talk that's real good. But up next, it's Hugh Hewitt asking John Kasich about his style versus Carly Fiorina's. But there are different styles. And uh, Carly Fiorina, Governor Kasich, you are conveniently located next to each other and you have different styles. Governor Kasich, you've been on my show a lot. You refuse to attack Hillary Clinton. You just don't want to go there. You want to do the up with people, go Ohio campaign. And I like that. Carly Fiorina, I don't have to bring up the Secretary of State. <laughs> you bring her up, Sue Esponte. Which one of you is wrong, Governor Kasich? Well, look, I'm, people still have to get to know me, so I want to spend my time talking about my experience reforming welfare, balancing budgets, cutting taxes, providing economic growth when I was in Washington, turning Ohio around, $8 billion in the hole, $2 billion surplus, up over 300,000 jobs, big tax cuts, uh, strengthening our credit. All those things matter. But, you know, I, I, as a young man, uh, in my first election in 1978, I defeated an incumbent Democrat. I defeated an incumbent Democrat in 1982, running on the Reagan program. I was the only Republican in America to defeat an incumbent Democrat that year. And then when I uh, won for election to governor, I was the first Republican to defeat an incumbent in 36 years. And the first person to have never run statewide, out of politics for 10 years, to beat an incumbent, that hadn't happened for 96 years. So we'll get to the point where we'll talk about Hillary Clinton or whoever the nominee is record. But right now, I want to give people a sense of hope, a sense of purpose, a sense of unity, a sense that we can do it. So, um, you Governor. know, you at the end of the day, I'm going to continue to talk about my record because there's. Do you ever notice when people run for office, they run for president, they make a lot of promises, they don't keep them. Thank I don't you, intend Governor. to do that. And I'm going to be out there pushing and I'll, don't worry about me and Hillary. That'll all work out. And I'm from Ohio. She will not beat me there. I can promise you that. <laughs> Again, trying to surreptitiously talk to the Republican base about the importance of his home state. So John Kasich is one of the few Republican candidates that on PolitiFact has uh, more significant ratings in true, mostly true and half true. Oh, wow. That's um, nice. Typically, they have mostly false statements on PolitiFact. Um, but he says he's, quote, one of the chief architects of balancing the federal budget. They rated that as mostly true. He was the budget chairman during that time in, in the House. Yeah. And then he says, I took the state of Ohio from an $8 billion hole to a $2 billion surplus. And PolitiFact gives that a mostly true. Hmm. So those seem like two very positive things and a presidential candidate you you would think so he's also compassionate and and loving and decent and has some empathy relative to the poor and the 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 under entitled right he seems to be the only republican candidate who ever talks about welfare or uh, drug addiction you know things like that and helping the the lesser among us right. yeah yeah well next up is a clip where Donald Trump is asked about not knowing names of world leaders. See, Mr. Trump, Senator Rubio said it was, quote, very concerning to him that in a recent interview, you didn't seem to know the details about some of the enemies the U.S. faces, 
Rubio said, if you don't know the answers to those questions, you will not be able to serve as commander in chief. Please respond to Senator Rubio. Well, I heard you, Hewitt, a nice man. He apologized because he actually said that we had a misunderstanding. And he uh. said today that Donald Trump is maybe the best interview there is anywhere that he's ever done. <laughs> now, unless he was just saying that on CNN to be nice, but he did say that. Is uh, that you're the best statement? interview in America. And we had a legitimate <laughs> misunderstanding in terms of his pronunciation of a word. But that was uh, Hugh Hewitt, by the way. Just, well, I think it was. And he actually said that. Did you say that? And so radio makes an interesting thing. Okay, so uh, I will say this, though. Uh, you was giving me name after name, Arab name, Arab name, and there are few people anywhere, clamor, clamor, anywhere clamor. that would have known those names. I think he was reading them off a sheet. And frankly, I will have, and I told him, I will have the finest team that anybody's put together, and we will solve a lot of problems. You know, right now, they know a lot, and look at what's happening. The world is blowing up around us. We will have great teams and great people. So <laughs> I don't think the crowd was re reacting well to Donald Trump there. To saying Arab name, Arab name, Arab name. I think they even the Republican audience knew, like, oh, shit. I know. What is wrong this with you? This guy is on fucking thin ice. Also, is anyone else talking about themselves in the third person? Yeah, I don't know. Here's the thing. I, I think that Donald Trump is either going to he's going to fall in the polls no matter what's going to happen. This is what I think he's going to fall. But I think once he does start to fall, he's going to try some fucking weird tactic where he talks about Megyn Kelly's period or some bullshit that's going to be a distraction that gives him a lot of press. And that's going to be his last ditch effort to try to get back up in the polls. So next up is still Donald Trump talking about the his anti-war Iraq position prior to the second Iraq war post 9-11, and he mixes it up with Jeb Bush. I am the only person on this dais, the only person that fought very, very hard against us, and I wasn't a sitting politician, going into Iraq. Because I said going into Iraq, that was in 2003, you can check it out, check out, I'll give you 25 different stories. In fact, a delegation was sent to my office to see me because I was so vocal about it. I'm a very militaristic person, but you have to know when to use the military. I'm the only person up here that fought against going into Iraq. Yeah, now, can I, can now, I make a response to just that? Just excuse me one second, Randy. You don't mind, Randy. You know, you are on less. You, you do have your 1%. I would like, and I think it's very important. Talking to Rand Paul. I think Paul. it's important because it's about judgment. It's about judgment. I didn't want to go into Iraq, and I fought it. Because what I said to you, May what I, I said, was you're going to destabilize the Middle East, and that's what happened. So He's you, referred to me no, in the first remarks. Chance, May I make a response? Right after me. Go ahead, I'll, I'll yield, yield the floor. What do you guys say in the Senate when you're talking and debating? Absolutely. Go Whatever. ahead. Here's the fact. When Donald Trump talks about judgment, what was his position on who would have been the best negotiator to deal with Iran? It wasn't a Republican. It was Hillary Clinton. That's what you believe. I mean, the lack of judgment and the lack of understanding about how the world works is really dangerous in this kind of time that we're saying. So is that the judgment that well, you look, bring to the look, table, that Hillary Clinton is a great negotiator, it, that she could bring about a better your deal brother And your brother's administration gave us Barack Obama because it was such a disaster those last three months that Abraham Lincoln couldn't have been elected. You know what? As it relates to my brother, there's one thing I know for sure. He kept us safe. I don't know if you remember Donald. Not good for Trump. You remember the 
the rubble. You remember the firefighter with his arms around it? He sent a clear signal that the United States would be strong and fight Islamic terrorism. And he did keep us safe. I don't know. You feel safe right now? I don't feel so safe. May no, I respond? That's because, of Barack, that's because of Barack Obama. That's because of Barack Obama. We've had... And that was Scott Walker at the end. We're not getting a lot of Scott Walker. He must not have uh, blown my skirt up very much. Well, I'll tell you this. So there's a couple of things that stuck out at this moment for Trump. For so There's a couple of things that stuck out for me with Trump. Um, the crowd did not act... The crowd did not react well no. to him insulting Rand Paul. It was murmur, murmur. Oh, yeah. It was, this is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And you could hear the reaction. And then again, when he insulted George W. Bush. Well, it was pretty much just crickets. You well, right. Mean? Yeah, they, they didn't have a response. But then once George W. Bush was defended, there was that massive applause. Yeah, and yeah. it's, you know, that is an audience full of Republicans who love George W. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. You're not going to get it's, anywhere insulting that's him. That's right. Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's a bunch of people who, who unabashedly voted for him twice. I'm one of them, although... I'm only proud of the one vote. That's why. The second time, not so much. That's why someone, I think you said Scott Walker, jumped in and said, no, that's on that's on Obama. Yeah, you know, yeah, making yeah, the crowd yeah. like, yeah, hey, guys, I know what you want. <laughs> I'm saying what you want, right? That's who we need to blame. That's exactly right. Well, don't uh, don't uh, don't think that Chris Christie didn't take advantage of this time, this this brief moment of respite where they were talking about 9-11. Don't think that Chris Christie didn't jump in there and remind everybody that he he's from New Jersey and he has a tie to New York City and he was around. He actually was around during 9-11. Uh, Governor Christie, we just marked the 14th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Now, Dr. Carson has said uh, that if he had been president at the time, the United States would not have gone to war in Afghanistan what does that say to you about how Dr. Carson would respond as president if America were attacked again? Well, Jake, uh, I was named U.S. Attorney by President Bush on September 10th, 2001. Uh, no, you were not. And again, this is something that we had to fact check on the first bonus debate episode. And now he is continuing to lie about this. He's a big, fat liar. Again, oh, I don't mean fat because he's fat because he's a fat guy. But what a dirty, filthy, pants-on-fire bullshit. It was on December 7th, 2001, three months after the attacks, that President Bush released the notice of the nomination. That is a fact. That is a facty fact fact. So I don't... One of the biggest facts that you could fact... That's a facty fact. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. Why does he keep repeating this, though? I, I mean, don't it's, know. It's being it's being reported in PolitiFact. It's being reported on Reason.com. I mean, there's multiple news sources that are saying, hey, this is a lie. Yeah, he's a liar. And he keeps saying it. He's a no good, filthy truth stretcher. How about that? Not a liar, although I think he knows that it's not true. Well, let him continue. Talk about 9-11, because I don't know if you know, Brittany, he was there. He was around. And that next day, my wife, Mary Pat, did what she did every day. She traveled through the World Trade Center and went to her office two blocks from the World Trade Center. And after those planes hit for five and a half hours after that, I couldn't reach her, didn't know whether she was dead or alive, and we had three children at that time, eight, five, and one. And I had to confront what so many thousands of others in my region had to confront, the idea that I might become a single parent, the idea 
that my life and my children's life might be changed forever. We lost friends that day. We went to the funerals. And I will tell you that what those people wanted and what they deserved was for America to answer back against what had been done to them. And I support what President Bush did at that time, going into Afghanistan, hunting al-Qaeda and its leaders, getting its sanctuary out of place, and making it as difficult around the world for them to move people and money. And then he went to prosecutors like us, and he said, never again. So how does him having been there, his wife being two blocks away and traveled through the World Trade Center, I'm assuming he means the subway station underneath, but how does that make him more qualified to be president of the United States? Right. I mean, I, I understand the emotional plea, but really, what does it have to do well, with it's just, anything? It's a weird thing that so many people do. I know a lot of people from New York City who do this same bullshit. And, you know, I, I think I could be among them of people who do that. That I lived in, in Washington, D.C. during 9-11. It, I, I very well could be playing this ticket all the time. But my experience is no less valid than any other American. This was a, a, a national tragedy that marked the psyche of, of an entire country and its, and its citizens. I don't have any, any more claim to, to trauma because I was close to the tragedy. Right. And I mean, I remember when I was in school and I had a teacher while 9-11 was happening and he was basically in tears and going outside to call his family that lived in New York. And I mean, that was in Idaho. Right. Yeah. All the way across the country. So just because you're in close proximity to it happening... It doesn't mean that you have some sort of monopoly on the emotionality that was associated with that event. That's exactly right. It's almost arrogant or selfish of him to act like that. Well, so next up, we're going to get into a little bit of Mike Huckabee because there just isn't enough Huckabee. So here it is. Mike Huckabee asked about his litmus test for the court. And what is his answer? Governor Huckabee, I want to bring you in very quickly, if you could. Will you have a litmus test when it comes to appointing Supreme Court nominees? You better believe I will, because I'm tired of liberals always having a litmus test and conservatives are supposed to pretend we don't. Well, let me tell you what mine would be. Number one, I'd ask, do you think that the unborn child is a human being or is it just a blob of tissue? I'd want to know the answer to that. I'd want to know, do you believe in the First Amendment? Do you believe that religious liberty is the fundamental liberty around which all the other freedoms of this country are based? And I'd want to know, do you really believe in the Second Amendment? Do you believe that we have an individual right to bear arms, to protect ourselves and our family, and to protect our country? And do you believe in the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment? Do you believe that a person, before they're deprived of life and liberty, should in fact have due process and equal protection under the law. Because if you do, you're going to do more than defund Planned you, Parenthood. One final thing. I'd make darn sure that we absolutely believe the Tenth Amendment. Every governor on this stage would share this much with you. Every one of us. Our biggest fight wasn't always with the legislature or even with the Democrats. My gosh, half the time it was with the federal government who apparently never understood Thank that you. if it's not reserved in the Constitution... Then the Tenth Amendment says it's left to the states, but somebody forgot Thank to send you, a memo to Washington. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Governor. Dick, all right, we get it. Hey, asshole, stop. It's not your turn anymore. <laughs> 
Well, poor, poor JTAP. It, it just lets you know just where Huckabee stands and that he wants a theocracy. He right. wants to be <laughs> the chief theocrat at the head of the American theocracy. His priorities are just very, uh, I don't know, they're not, they're not in line with moderates. Well, he's just appealing to what he believes to be the Republican base. And I, I don't even know that those people to whom he's trying to appeal are really the Republican base. I mean, with the t- statistics that we see that 58% of millennial Republicans are in full support of gay marriage, uh, who does he think he's talking to, you know? Anyway, next up, and we're wrapping it up here very quickly, or in the number of clips. Rand Paul starts talking about legalizing marijuana, and it just kind of devolves from a talk about the legalization of marijuana and medical marijuana into some heroin and drug addiction and lots of candidates get involved. It just, yeah, I'll just, I'll let you decide. But the bottom line is the states, we say we like the 10th Amendment until we start talking about this. And I think the federal government's gone too far. I think that the war on drugs has had a racial outcome and really has been something that's really damaged our inner cities. Not only do the drugs damage them, we damage them again by incarcerating them and then preventing them from getting employment over time. So I don't think that the federal government should override the states. I believe in the 10th Amendment, and I really will say that the states are left to themselves. I want to give that... I want to give the person that you called a hypocrite uh, an opportunity to respond. Do you want to identify that person? Well, I think if we left it open, we could see how many people smoked pot in high school. <laughs> is there somebody you were specifically thinking of? Well, you know, the thing is... You were talking about me. Yeah, I was talking That's about... That's what I thought, so, but well, I wanted, Jeff Bush. Say, uh, I wanted to point, make me... it easier for him. Yeah. Okay. And I just did. Governor Bush, please. So 40 years ago, I smoked marijuana, uh, and I admit it. I'm sure that other people might have done it and may not want to say it in front of 25 million people. My mom's not happy that I just did. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. We have, we have a serious epidemic of drugs that goes way beyond marijuana. What goes on in Colorado, as far as I'm concerned, that should be a state decision. But if you look at the problem of drugs in this, in this society today, it's a serious problem. Rand, you know this because you're campaigning in New Hampshire like all of us, and you see the epidemic of heroin, the overdoses of heroin that's taking place. People's families are, are being torn apart. This it escalated is quickly. for the government to play a consistent yeah, role to be able to provide more treatment, more prevention, we're the state that has the most drug courts across every circuit in, in, in Florida. They're drug courts to give people a second chance. That's the best way to do this. But let, let me respond. The thing is, is that in Florida, Governor Bush campaigned against medical marijuana. That means that a small child like Morgan Hintz that has 500 seizures a day is failing on nine traditional medications, is not allowed to use cannabis oil, and that if they attempt to do that in Florida... They will take the child away. They will put the parents in jail. And that's what that means. If you're against allowing people to use medical marijuana, you'll actually put them in jail. Right, and actually, under the current circumstances, kids who had privilege like you do don't go to jail, but the poor kids in our inner, inner cities go to jail. I don't think that's fair, and I think that Yikes. we need to acknowledge it, and it is hypocritical to still want to put poor people in jail. I don't want to put and, poor people in jail, Rand. Well, you you, Here's you, the deal. You, you oppose medical Here, marijuana? No, oppose- I did not oppose when the legislature passed the bill to deal with that very issue. That's the way to solve this problem. Medical marijuana on the ballot was opened up. It was a, there's a huge loophole. 
And it was the first step towards getting to a Colorado place. And as a citizen of Florida, I voted no. But let's, that means okay. you'll put people let's in jail. Let's I want to go right now. You brought my issue up. That's it, true. Go ahead, Christine, I mean, please. You know, I, I enjoyed the interplay. Thank you, gentlemen. I, I just say this. You know, first off, New Jersey is the first state in the nation that now says if you are a nonviolent, non-dealing drug user, that you don't go to jail for your first offense. You go to mandatory treatment. You see, as Jake, I'm pro-life. And I think you need to be pro-life for more than just the time in the womb. It gets a lot tougher when they get out of the womb. And when they're the 16-year-old drug addict on the floor of the county lockup, that life is just as precious as the life in the womb. And so that's why I'm for rehabilitation, why I think the war on drugs has been a failure. But I'll end with this. That doesn't mean we should be legalizing gateway drugs. And if Senator Paul thinks that the only victim is the person, look at the decrease in productivity, look at the way people get used and move on to other drugs when they use marijuana as a gateway drug. It's not them that they're the only victims. Their families are the victims, too. Their children are the victims, too. And their employers are the victims also. And that's why I'll enforce the federal law, while you can still put an emphasis on rehabilitation, which you've done in New Jersey. Yeah, you may respond, and then I'll bring in you, Ms. Fiorina. Understand what they're saying. If they're going to say we are going to enforce the federal law against what the state law is, they aren't really believing in the Tenth Amendment. Governor Christie would go into Colorado, and if you're breaking any federal law on marijuana, even though the state law allows it, he would put you in jail. If a young mother is trying to give her child cannabis oil for medical marijuana for seizure treatment, he would put her in jail if it violates federal law. I would let Colorado do what the Tenth Amendment says. This power, we were never intended to have crime dealing at the federal level. Crime was supposed to be left to the states. Colorado's made their decision, and I don't want the federal government interfering and putting moms in jail who are simply trying to get medicine for their kids. And and Senator Paul knows that that's simply not the truth. In New Jersey, we have medical marijuana laws, which I've supported and implemented. This is not medical marijuana. This goes as much further step beyond. This is recreational use of marijuana. This is much different. And so while he'd like to use a sympathetic story to, to back up his point, it doesn't work. I'm not against medical marijuana. We do it in New Jersey. But I am against the recreational use of marijuana. If he wants to change the federal law, get Congress to pass the, uh, pass the law to change it and get a president to sign I, it. May I respond? Yes, Senator Paul. Here's the thing is he doesn't want to make it about medical marijuana, but what if New Jersey's medical marijuana contradicts the federal law? He's saying he will send the federal government in and he will enforce the federal law. That's not consistent with the Tenth Amendment. It's not consistent with states' rights, and it's not consistent with a conservative vision for the country. I don't think we should be sending the federal police in to arrest a mother and separate them from their child for giving a medicine to their child for seizures. And, and Jake, I'm I, not, I, I want to bring, bring in Ms. Fiorina. I want to bring in Ms. Fiorina this issue. I very much hope that I am the only person on this stage who can say this, but I know there are millions of Americans out there who will say the same thing. My husband, Frank, and I buried a child to drug addiction. So we must invest more in the treatment of drugs. I agree with Senator Paul. I agree with states' rights. But we are misleading young people when we tell them that marijuana is just like having a beer. It's not. And the marijuana that kids are smoking today is not the same as the marijuana that Jeb Bush smoked 40 years ago. We do. Sorry, Barbara. 
We do need, we do need criminal justice reform. We have the highest incarceration rates in the world. Two-thirds of the people in our prisons are there for nonviolent offenses, mostly drug-related. It's clearly not working. But we need to tell young people the truth. Drug addiction is an epidemic, and it is taking too many of our young people. I know this sadly from personal experience. So I don't really know exactly where she stands on the issue of marijuana legalization after that. She didn't really say. Well, I just think it's interesting. I, I made a couple notes during that clip. Um, As I knew you would. It's in- no, seven minutes. I, I, I figured you would have. Right. It was either that or fall asleep. So Yeah, well, I did both. Um, Since that's the third time I've heard that. The first time I watched the debate, then when I gathered <laughs> the clips, and now listening to it again. So it's just interesting. And it will be four times because now I have to edit this episode. (laughs) It's interesting how quickly the conversation went from marijuana to heroin. Um, It was a pretty quick leap. And there's also vast differences between those two drugs. And I also thought it was interesting that Rand Paul talked about privilege. Yeah. He um, commented on Jeb Bush having privilege. and Even though... He, he grew has up privilege, with privilege. Yeah, right? he, his father is an OBGYN. He's a he's a medical doctor. Right, his father's Ron Paul. Yeah, a, um, a badge doctor. Yep. He likes he looks at vaginas. I don't know if he lot. likes it, but he did that. Um, <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. And what's what's so um, fascinating about these people is they can be so rational. And so articulate and so intelligent on certain issues. And then other times they talk about other issues and you're just like, you're so like confusing. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it's pandering. It's because the Republican Party is like schizophrenic on a certain topic. And they they really don't know who do I support? Who would I who do I back up? Which portion of the of the party do I try to garner support from? So do you think that Rand Paul, in his heart, is more of a rational fellow, but he has to kind of play up certain aspects of what he believes in order to fit oh, with... Oh, so are you saying that you believe it's an irrational position that he takes? No, I'm talking about, like, the privilege thing. Oh, and... oh I, I thought you were talking about the drug thing. Yeah, I, I don't know, um... I think that there he looks at it, uh, you know, being multi multi millionaires, being exceedingly wealthy, different than just being way upper middle class or mildly rich. And you know that I have come around on the issue of legalization. For instance, when Chris Christie was saying, um, you know, this is separate from marijuana. This is separate from medical marijuana. What we're talking about is more serious than that. It's recreational marijuana. I mean, I can't, right. I can't help but laugh at that statement. Right, right. I mean, come on. Well, even when Carly Fiorina, and l- listen, I-, I have empathy for and I feel bad if she buried one of her children to, as a result of drug abuse or drug addiction. That's terrible. I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But to say that, well, you know, the weed the kids are smoking now is it's it's not the same as just beer. It's eh, you know what? It's probably less harmful than beer if you're doing it as an adult, because you're not going to die from smoking weed and you will die. You can overdose from beer and from booze tonight. That is something that you can do. Weed is not as dangerous 
as alcohol. It's just not. It's not, Brittany. I, <laughs> I see the eyes. I'm it's not, not. I'm not. I'm not making eyes. All right. No, I'm not making eyes. All right. Maybe I just uh, I misunderstood. Um. I'm not saying weed is completely safe, no problems, no side effects, not a big deal. I'm saying to say that that alcohol is so much more benign than marijuana is is a misnomer and it's misleading the American people. No, and I understand that. And I, I will say that the way that these Republicans were talking about it does a disservice to the the arguments for for yeah. medical marijuana for med- for marijuana period but also the way that um certain liberals argue about marijuana also does a disservice because they act like it is you know this magical berry yeah yeah that cures if, cancer and shit right that if people just take it then all of their ailments are cured right and you know i don't i don't i don't necessarily take that view well we have empirical evidence that it it, it stimulates appetite. So if you are if you've lost a shit ton of weight due to chemotherapy or whatever other treatment, it will stimulate your appetite. You can not suffer from the weight loss. Listen, there are benefits for certain diseases, sure. certain ailments, and I think that is the important part of what Rand Paul is saying. Right. Well, it, he's also speaking from a liberty perspective too, which is it's none of the government's fucking business. Right, and I think that's what I don't like about um, the the argument that liberals try to take with this issue is, you know, oh, it's this miracle plan. Everybody should be free to use it. How about you just say, yeah, I'm an adult. I should be free to use it. Right. Well, why do you have to act like it's so good for you and it's so beneficial? Right, it changes the argument when there's no need to do that. Just say, I'm an adult. I should be able to do it. The argument ends there. What? Why do you need to say anything else? Absolutely. And I think that's what Rand Paul was saying. It's probably bad for you to eat a ream of paper every day of your life. It's probably not good, <laughs> but you should be able to do that if that's what you want to do as a grown adult. Anyway, let's move on before we fucking get too far in the weeds with the eating the ream of paper. Uh they got into it. Brittany wanted to hear this. <laughs> they got into an anti-vax argument. Dr. Carson was asked about Donald Trump being an anti-vaxxer, which he is an anti-science, anti-vax conspiracy theorist. And this is how it went down. A backlash against <laughs> vaccines was blamed for a measles outbreak here in California. Dr. Carson... Donald Trump has publicly and repeatedly linked vaccines, childhood vaccines, California. to autism, which, as you know, the medical community adamantly disputes. You're a pediatric neurosurgeon. Should Mr. Trump stop saying this? Well, let me put it this way. There, has been, there have been numerous studies, and they have not demonstrated uh, that there's any correlation between vaccinations and autism. Uh, this was something that was uh, spread widely 15 or 20 years ago. And it has not been adequately, uh, you know, revealed to the public what's actually going on. Vaccines are very important, certain ones, the ones that would prevent death or crippling. There are others, there are multitude of vaccines which probably don't fit in that category, and there should be some discretion in those cases. But, you know, a lot of this is, is pushed by big government, and I think that's one of the things that people so vehemently uh, want to get rid of big government. You know, we have 4.1 million 
federal employees, 650 federal agencies and department. That's why they have to take so much of our taxes. Should he stop saying it? Should he stop saying the vaccines cause autism? Well, you know, I've just explained it to him. Uh, he can read about it if he wants to. I think he's an intelligent man and will make the correct decision after getting the real facts. Mr. Trump, as president, well, I'd, you would, I'd like to, I'd like I'm to going respond. right to you. I'd like Mr. to respond. Mr. Trump, as president, you would be in charge of the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health, both of which say you are wrong. How would you handle this as president? Autism has become an epidemic. <laughs> 25 years ago, 35 years ago, you look at the statistics, not even close. It has gotten totally out of control. I am totally in favor of vaccines, but I want smaller doses over a longer period of time. Because you take a baby in, and I've seen it, and I've seen it, and I had my children taking care of over a long period of time, over a two or three year period of time, same exact amount. But you take this little beautiful baby and you pump, I mean, it looks just like it's meant for a horse, not for a child. And we've had so many instances, people that worked for me just the other day, Two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and a week later got a tremendous fever, got very, very sick, now is autistic. What? I only say it's not, I'm in favor of vaccines. Do them over a longer period of time, same amount. Thank you. Just in, in little sections. Dr. Car- I Dr. Think, and I think you're going to have, I think you're going to see a big impact on autism. Dr. Carson, you just heard his medical take. <laughs> He's an okay doctor. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, it's almost like they set him up for that. Like they let him know that was coming. Because that's that's a reference to the comment that Donald Trump made about Ben Carson that he's an okay doctor. When he's a world-renowned ridiculous pediatric neurosurgeon who's separated conjoined twins in the brain. I mean, he's awesome. So a couple of things. Yes. Um, I'm disappointed that Ben Carson didn't specifically reference Andrew Wakefield because that is the only study um, that started this controversy. And Andrew Wakefield found a correlation between vaccines and autism and his participants were 12 children and he lied. He fabricated data in order to reach those conclusions. He has and, a medical license revoked. And the, the study was retracted. Yes. And he has been shamed. And it is universally looked at as, you know, I mean, it, it's not it's not a good thing because it caused, you know, the uninitiated to be frightened. Um, and so when he says that there's many, many studies that have been done that have found no correlation, he should have talked about, no, Andrew Wakefield started this because of his study with 12 One children. Study. Right. He should have been specific and said those things. Maybe so I'm disappointed that he didn't. Yeah, maybe he doesn't know. I doubt that. Anyway. I love how, I love how Donald Trump says autism is an epidemic. So it must be because of vaccines. It's not because of better reporting or many other factors. Or misdiagnosis or who knows? Who knows what the cause is, but he automatically attributes it to vaccines. Well, have vaccines increased in recent years, Donald Trump? Are vaccines different now, Donald Trump? I mean, how much do you know about the science? He's clearly a tremendous, tremendous expert. Well, and, and one thing that I would like to note is that the Institute of Medicine 
has looked at whether the immunization schedule is safe, and they found that there is no evidence of safety concerns. Zero evidence. But it went further, saying, quote, rather than exposing (laughs) children to harm, following the complete childhood immunization schedule is strongly associated with reducing vaccine-preventable diseases. So this whole idea of, oh, we're pumping our children full of chemicals, we need to spread it out, there's no basis for that. Well, I'm hoping that this is his Michelle Bachman moment. Remember, she said that the the Gardasil vaccine made made one of her friend's daughters mentally retarded. Someone that came up to her in a crowd. That's right. It wasn't even her friend or something. Right, it's just someone some random. Right, and Donald Trump saying the same thing. Someone he knows this happened. What are you talking about Let's, with this anecdotal, ridiculous BS? Like I said, I think this will be the beginning of the downfall of Donald Trump. My prognostication. It was definitely evident that, you know, he he can't keep up with people. Yeah, yeah. He can't. Yeah, he's he's an uh, he's a tremendous idiot. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap it up. I wanna I wanna provide just like we did last time. I wanna provide the closing statements of all of the different candidates. So here, unabridged. Is from from Rand Paul, who was on the far left, stage left, all the way to Chris Christie, who was far stage right, in succession with no commercial interruption, all of the candidate closing statements. You know, I met Ronald Reagan as a teenager, and my family were big supporters of him when he ran against Gerald Ford. It was a big deal because he was the grassroots running against the establishment. And I'll never forget that and how we stood up and said, you know what, this is something new that our that our country needs and our party needs. If I were president, I would uh, try to be one who says, you know what, I'm a Reagan conservative. I'm someone who believes in peace through strength. And I would try to lead the country in that way, knowing that our goal was peace and that war is the last resort, not the first resort. And that when we go to war, we go to war in a constitutional way which means that we have to vote on it, that war is initiated by Congress, not by the president, and that we go to war reluctantly. But then when we go to war, we don't fight with one arm tied behind our back. We fight all out to win, but then we come home. At the end of my presidency, I would like to believe that the world would be a safe place, and there wouldn't be the threats, not only to the U.S., but to Israel and our allies, because we would have the most incredible, well-trained, well-equipped, well-prepared military in the history of mankind. And they would know that a commander-in-chief would never send them to a mission without all the resources necessary. But people wouldn't bully us anymore because they would know that that would be an invitation to their destruction. Domestically, we'd be operating under a tax system that eliminated the IRS. People wouldn't be punished for their work and for what they produced. And life would be really deemed precious. Abortion would be no more. It would be as much of a scourge in our past as slavery is. And we'd have a peaceful country where people respected each other and people respected law enforcement. And we would focus on cures. And we would make this country not only safe from our enemies without, but safe from the enemies within. And it would be a good place to raise our kids and our grandkids. One of the things that made Ronald Reagan a great president is that he understood that America was a unique nation, unlike any other that had existed throughout human history. He knew it was founded on universal principles that were powerful, the dignity of all people, human rights, 
the rights of all to live in freedom and liberty and to choose their own path in life. He just didn't believe it. He acted on it. That's why bringing down communism was so important to him. If I'm honored with the opportunity to be president, I hope that our Air Force One will fly to the first and foremost to our allies in Israel, in South Korea, in Japan. They know we stand with them, that America can be counted on. It would also fly to China, not just to meet with our enemies, not just to meet with those adversaries of ours that are there, but also to meet with those that aspire to freedom and liberty within China. I would even invite them to our inauguration. We would also fly into Moscow and into Russia, and not just meet with the leaders of Russia, but also meet with those who aspire to freedom and liberty in, in Russia. And ultimately, I hope that my Air Force One, if I, belong, if I become president, will one day land in a free Cuba, where its people can choose their leaders and its own destiny. Ronald Reagan believed in America. If I'm elected president, our friends and allies across the globe will know that we stand with them. The bust of Winston Churchill will be back in the Oval Office, and the American Embassy in Israel will be in Jerusalem. Enemies across this world will know the United States is not to be trifled with. ISIS will be defeated. We will have a president willing to utter the words radical Islamic terrorism, and the Ayatollah Khamenei will understand that he will never, ever, ever acquire nuclear weapons. Here at home, we'll reignite the promise of America. Young people coming out of school with student loans up to their eyeballs will find, instead of no jobs, two, three, four, five job opportunities. How will that happen? Through tax reform, we'll pass a simple flat tax and abolish the IRS. And through regulatory reform, we will repeal every word of Obamacare. You want to know what I'll do as president? It's real simple. We'll kill the terrorists, we'll repeal Obamacare, and we will defend the Constitution every single word of it. Well, you know, I was a radical Democrat before I started listening to Ronald Reagan. And he didn't sound like what they said Republicans were. He sounded logical. And I hope that I sound logical also, because when I look at what's going on with the United States of America, I see a lot of things that are not logical. I see us allowing people to divide us when, in fact, our strength is in our unity. I see people exercising the most irresponsible fiscal habits that anyone could possibly do and hiding it from the American people so that the majority of people have no idea what our financial situation is. So when someone comes along and says, free college, free phones, free this and that and the other, they say, wow, that's nice, having no idea that they're destabilizing our position. And I think also that Ronald Reagan was a master at understanding that a pinnacle nation has to be a nation that leads. If we learn to lead in the Middle East right now, a coalition will form behind us, but they will never do it if we just sit there and talk about it. Real leadership is what I would hopefully, hopefully bring to America. If I become president, we will do something really special. We will make this country greater than ever before. We'll have more jobs. We'll have more of everything. We were discussing disease. We were discussing all sorts of things tonight, many of which will just be words. It'll just pass on. I don't want to say politicians all talk, no action. 
but a lot of what we talked about is words, and it'll be forgotten very quickly. If I'm president, many of the things that we discussed tonight will not be forgotten. We'll find solutions, and the world will respect us. They will respect us like never before, and it'll be actually a friendlier world. And I have to say, it's a great honor to be here tonight. Six million more people are living in poverty than the day that Barack Obama got elected president. Six million more people. The middle class has had declining income. Workforce participation rates are lower than they were in 1977. For the first time in modern history, more businesses are failing than are being created. That is what the next president will have to deal with. And I believe we can reverse course by creating a strategy of high sustained economic growth. Not the new normal of 2% that all the left says we just have to get used to but a 4% growth strategy where we reform how we tax, fix the broken regulatory system, embrace the energy revolution in our midst, fix the immigration system so we can turn it into an economic driver, deal with the structural fiscal problems that exist because of our entitlement uh, problems that will overwhelm and create way too much debt. If we grow at 4%, people are going to be lifted out of poverty. The great middle that defines our country will have a chance to be able to pursue their dreams as they see fit. That should be the great challenge and the great opportunity for the next president of the United States, to forge consensus, to go back to a high-growth strategy, and then we'll be able to lead the world. Without a high-growth strategy, our country will never have the resources or the, pot, or the optimism to be able to lead the world, which the world desperately needs our leadership. Well, I turned 13, di- 13 years old two days before Ronald Reagan was first elected. And a lot of people forget this, but just a few days before that election, 1980, he was behind in the polls. But I think what changed things was people in America realized they didn't want to hear what was bad about America. They wanted to know how it was going to be better. Ronald Reagan wasn't just a conservative or Republican. He was an eternal optimist in the American people. And I am too. So here's what I think will make America better. We need to live in a world where our children are free are free from the threats of radical Islamic terrorism. We need to live in an America where we have an economy where everyone can live their piece of the American dream, no matter what that dream is. And we need to live in an America where we have a federal government that's not too big, not, it's not too big to fail, but ultimately small enough to succeed, where we send powers back to the states and back to the people. That's what I did in Wisconsin. When we took on the big government union bosses, the big government special interests, many of whom came in from Washington to spend millions of dollars to try and take me out because we stood up to them. We didn't back down in any of those instances. If you give me the chance as your next president, I won't back down any day, any way, anyhow. I'll fight and win for you and your families every single day I'm in office. I think what this nation can be and must be is symbolized by Lady Liberty and Lady Justice. Lady Liberty stands tall and strong. She is clear-eyed and resolute. She doesn't shield her eyes from the realities of the world, but she faces outward into the world nevertheless, as we always must, and she holds her torch high because she knows she is a beacon of hope in a very troubled world. And Lady Justice, Lady Justice holds a sword by her side because she is a fighter, a warrior for the values and the principles that have made this nation great. She holds a scale in her other hand. And with that scale, she says, all of us are equal in the eyes of God. And so all of us must be equal in the eyes of the law and the government, powerful and powerless alike. And she wears a blindfold. 
And with that blindfold, she is saying to us that it must be true, it can be true, that in this country, in this century, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter how you start, it doesn't matter your circumstances. Here in this nation, every American's life must be filled with the possibilities that come from their God-given gifts. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Well, as, uh, as president, I will make this a nation that will solve problems. And how? By having the elected officials and the leaders realize they're Americans before they're Republicans or Democrats. I did it in Washington, and I've done it in Ohio by having the elected officials realize that they're Ohioans before anything else. Secondly, I will rebuild the relationships and show the respect to our allies around the world. We have no choice but to do that. We will be stronger when we are unified and we'll fight for freedom and for human rights. And finally, maybe a little bit of what Carly said. The people that are out there listening, America was never great because we ran America from the top down. America is great because we've run America from the bottom up where we all live in the neighborhoods. One more time in America, we need to revive the concept of citizenship where everybody's actions make a huge difference in changing the world. We have a Holocaust memorial on our statehouse grounds, and there is one line on there that stands out all the time. If you've saved one life, you've changed the world. We need to adopt that as citizens and rebuild and re-inspire our country. Thank you. I turned 18 in 1980. And my first vote was for Ronald Reagan. Boy, am I glad I did it. And I think the country is, too. A Christie presidency won't be about me. It'll be about you. Tonight, you sit at home in your living room, frustrated that you play by the rules, you pay the taxes, you do the hard things to raise your family, yet you feel like America's generosity is being taken advantage of, that your system is being gamed, and that you're turning out to fall further and further behind. Our presidency, our presidency, will be about ending that, about enforcing the law, level the play field for everybody, and once again reward those folks who play by the rules and think that justice means more than just a word, but it means a way of life. And I will tell you this, around the world, I will not shake hands with, I will not meet with, and I will not agree to anything with a country that says death to us and death to Israel and holds our hostages while we sign agreements with them. It'll be an America that'll be strong and resolute and will once again be able to stick out its chest and say, we truly are the greatest nation in the world because we live our lives that way each and every day. So that's it. Listen, uh, we'll just leave you there. We'll let you reflect upon those individual statements and what each candidate had to say. I mean, there was some wackiness, whether it be Mike Huckabee or some more rational things, whether it be the last thing that you heard with Chris Christie or prior to him and my boy, John Kasich. The, if you save one life, you've changed the world. There, you know, these are Republicans and 
largely they they are more conservative and might not resonate with your particular political ethos but not all of them are irrational not all of them are to be completely discounted out of hand but not even the majority of them are completely irrational right. and i think it's important when the left says things about the, the the right i feel like they should be informed and they should know what they're talking about and the best way to do that is to listen to these debates listen to what the candidates are saying so when someone's talking about Scott Walker and you hear he's a Republican and you automatically go to, oh, he's a Republican, I don't like him, maybe it's important to know why you don't like That's him. That's exactly right. Because just because someone is a Republican doesn't mean that you're not going to agree with them. I mean, John Kasich is a pretty reasonable guy. Seems like I would agree with him about several things. Yeah. Um, but he calls himself a Republican. It's important to distinguish between these people Based on their merits, based on what they actually believe, based on what they say. Not a political label. Right. So it's awesome. Anyway, like I said at the beginning, the top of the show, we, we love you very much. We appreciate you, our 18 to 20, however many Patreons, whatever the number is out there of you guys. We love the shit out of you. We appreciate you very much. Your contributions are very important to what we do here. They are pivotal to our continued success and our continued growth as 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 a medium in 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 podcasting and we we love you very much it means the world to us that you would give us your hard-earned money to to join with us to to talk about these things as always we will put that number out there. We'd like to hear from you, specifically our Patreon subscribers, 657-464-7609. If anything else, we'd like to let maybe create some kind of jealousy <laughs> for the other listeners who didn't get this opportunity to be here with us. So let us know what your favorite was. Let us know what the 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 the, the dog of the night was or or you know maybe more more appropriately the uh yeah! of the night you you know it's <laughs> that's probably trump though well and even what you're looking forward to i would say on the next debate which anderson cooper will be moderating that's right o o middle o middle of october is the next one and we really do want to know what could we do better what would you want to hear what would you not want to hear we want constructive criticism but honest, open, just tell us. And if you're saying more Lindsey Graham, well, you might get your wish because people are saying that he might make it onto the main debate. Oh next yeah, time. are you reading that? Yep. Yeah, because we didn't read it. We didn't see any analysis. We had to get in here and get this fucking thing up. We had to get in here and get this thing recorded. So we did not watch analysis. Anyway, we love you. We appreciate you. Let us know what you think. Six five seven four six four seventy six zero nine. So until next time. For Jesse Dollimore, I'm Brittany Page, and this has been I Doubt It. Fuckhole. I mean, Senator Cruz. <laughs> 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 <laughs>